right? Now we can for real get started. My bad, Trace. Okay. Book of Jonah, one of the best known stories in the entire Bible, right? We all know, we've heard this story, if you've been in, in church since you were a kid, right? The story of a, a fish swallowing a man, or, you know, we always like to just go ahead and, and say a whale, right, swallowing a man, <coughs> which as children fascinated us, maybe kind of captured our imaginations, right? But the problem with that in this whole book of Jonah, the 48 verses, four chapters, right? There's, there's only like three verses that, that talk about um, the fish, so there's not really um, a lot of detail there, right? Um, and if we're not careful, we can fix kind of our, our, our point of reference or our fascination kind of on, on this idea of Jonah and the fish um, and miss everything else that's kind of in this book, right? Um, as, as a book, it is a um, considered kind of a masterpiece of literature, right? There is, uh, this, this book was written very cleverly, um, and I wish we had the time to really just dive into all the different um, uh, literary devices that are used and repetition of words and the way the guy kind of took the Hebrew language and, and, and used it beautifully through this book. We don't have time to get into all of that. We will touch on some of it. Um, but uh, this is also a book that by a lot of people is considered allegory or even a, they'll say it's a fairy tale. There's no possible way that a man could live in a fish for three days. But as um, people who believe scripture and what God puts in there is true and real, this is a real story, I do believe, um, that has a lot of relevance to um, us and to uh, what is going on in the world that we live in right now. So... With that being said, uh, author, right? We don't, we don't actually know who wrote this book, um, but as I said, you know, with the, the literary uh, masterpiece that it is, we know that they, are, they were a master of the Hebrew language and how to use it. Um, all kinds of different words and literary devices that are used. Um, and if we want to kind of break these 48 verses or four chapters of Jonah up into things, we can look at it a couple of ways. Uh, a very small, short outline, uh, it would be chapters 1 and 2 being God's mercy on Jonah, and chapters 3 and 4 being God's mercy on Nineveh, right? And then if you want to take it chapter by chapter and, and go kind of preacher alliteration style, you've got in Jonah 1, you've got perishing, Jonah 2, praying, Jonah 3, preaching, and Jonah 4 is pouting. Right, so that, that if you want to break it up into some themes and ideas there um, with how we would look at, at Jonah today, right? So Jonah was one of only four writing prophets that Jesus mentions by name during his time on earth, during his ministry. He mentioned Isaiah, Daniel, and Zechariah as the others. But Jonah receives even more than just a, a mention of who he is. Jesus uh, actually kind of identifies himself um, with Jonah and Jonah's three days inside this fish and, and, and note, notes it as a bit of foreshadowing to his death that was coming, his three days um, in, in death in the earth before his resurrection. We see this in Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 through 41. Um, then this same story, little, just very small differences, is told again in the book of Luke, chapter 11, 
verses 29 through 32. Um, then in Matthew chapter 16, 4, we get another mention of Jonah as Jesus mentions that uh, this, this generation will see the sign of Jonah as the previous generation. So we, Jonah is um, th- that Jesus validates the, um, the historical accuracy of, of Jonah being a real person and the story of Jonah um, being real gives us even more validation to um, who Jonah was and, um, and, and the story that we're about to kind of go through here of the, um, the truth to it. So Jonah 1.1 says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, so let's stop here and ask some questions, make some observations kind of on this verse. And like I said a minute ago, we don't really know the author, but let's try to figure, you know, who is writing this, right? We don't know. It could be Jonah, could be Jonah, which would really kind of be kind of funny, a little bit humbling thing for Jonah to do, because uh, if you've not read Jonah, spoiler alert, when you get to the end of Jonah, we probably don't really have a real high um, uh, outlook on who Jonah is as a person. Um, so... The picture of him is not, not all good in this book. But this could be an older Jonah, a little more humble, a little more contrite to kind of what's went on in his life, who wants other people to learn from his experience. Or it could be someone else, um, someone else we don't really know. <coughs> also don't know when it was written, right? It's kind of interesting. This book just, just jumps right in and starts. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Um, it doesn't have some of the important details that we typically see in these prophetic books as they, as they open. Um, there's a book we're going to get to in a few weeks, the book of Haggai. Let's listen here to the, the first uh, verse of, of Haggai as it says, um, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. That's some detail, right? You get year, day, month, right, all, right down in there. You get it in the second year that Darius was king, right? Sixth month on the first day of the month. Pretty precise, right? Then who, right? The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, who was the son of Shealtiel, who was the governor of Judah. It was written to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So get none of that here in Jonah. Get none of that. Don't get any of this. Don't know when it happened. Don't know where Jonah is when he gets it. We're not even told that Jonah is a prophet, right? Um, so we just have this, uh, this start of now, now. So the Hebrew word that's used to kind of start this off, introduce this here, uh, is to us almost this once upon a time, right? Which lends to that idea of a fairy tale, but that's not, it, it was more to introduce this was a story, the beginning of a story, right? So we immediately jump in, no setting. Instead, we, we have a sudden word of God, and it's like the author of Jonah is saying, kind of seemingly out of nowhere, Jonah got a word from God. He was not expecting it. It blindsided him. It just, boom, it came. It was there. We don't know how it came. Is it an audible voice? Is it a vision? Is it a dream? We don't know. It just came to Jonah. So, already mentioned, he's, Jonah's not called a prophet here or anywhere else through the book of Jonah. You're not going to see where it says the prophet Jonah. So, how do we know that Jonah is a prophet? One, first, because it gives some clues in that because the word of the Lord came to Jonah, right? Over a hundred times in the Old Testament, that phrase is used to introduce us to prophets of God, right? The word of the Lord came to this person. We see it seven times here in the book of Jonah. Um, the mark of who a prophet was, 
was that they received words from the Lord. Um, so the other reason to know Jonah was a prophet is because there is one other mention of him in the Old Testament. So let's jump over Second Kings chapter 14. If you're taking notes there, we see where Jonah appears. Second Kings 14, beginning in 23, <coughs> says, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned forty-one years. And he did what was evil in, in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the sea of, of, of the Arabah, according to, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel. Listen here. Which he spoke by his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under the sun, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So, we get a little historical context to who Jonah was, right? Jonah, now we know, was a prophet from Gath Hefer, right? It's not far from Nazareth, where he, where he where it turns out where he's from. Um, and he was prophesying during the reign of Jeroboam II. So we put him somewhere in about 790 to 753 B.C. So he's coming up on the, the exile, right? Not quite there yet. Israel and Judah are definitely falling apart uh, and have been for a while. Um, so it puts him in the 8th century, puts him around other prophets such as Amos and Hosea, which we've studied here just recently, right? Jeroboam was not a good king. He was an evil king. Um, he was sinning in the ways of his father Jeroboam before him, um, leading Israel into sin. So you got Jonah, you got Amos and Hosea somewhere during the same time. So what are Amos and Hosea doing? They're speaking out against Jeroboam. That's, their, that's part of their, their prophetic job, right? Hosea 7.3 says, where Hosea denounced King Jeroboam and the people. By their evil, they make the king glad, and the princes by their treachery. And in Amos chapter 7, verses 8 and 9, Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I, shall, I will never pass by, again by them, again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. So, once... Once, once Amos said that, here, here's, what, here's what Jeroboam, when Jeroboam heard what Amos said in Amos chapter 7, uh, his priest Amaziah came to Amos and said, O seer, O prophet, go, flee away from the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is the temple of the kingdom. So Amos just got kicked out of Israel, forbidden to prophesy there because he's speaking out against Jeroboam. Hosea is doing the same thing, speaking out. But that's not what is going down, it seems, between Jeroboam and Jonah, right? So get back to 2 Kings 14, right? He got a different assignment. His assignment was not to call out King Jeroboam, as Hosea and Amos were. His job was this, right? It talks about what happens during Jeroboam's time. It says, he Jeroboam restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai. So, for years, 
Assyria has been growing stronger and stronger, taking more and more land, becoming this empire, right? Um, the Israelites at this point now have a history of making payments to the Assyrians, right? We're not, not conquered by them, but they are subordinate to them. They are kind of making these, these bribe payments to keep them from attacking and, and taking them over. Um, they were subservient. They weren't under their rule yet, but they were subservient to them. Now, if we know anything about the Assyrians, they were very powerful. They were vicious. They were brutal. They were especially terrible in the time of war. They didn't just take prisoners. They slaughtered towns and cities and nations as they took them, right? Um, the records of the Assyrians boast of live dismemberment, so they would take off your arm or your leg or, an ear or whatever while you were still alive. They would stretch you with ropes, then they would skin you alive and then place your skin on the walls of the city for people to see. They would parade your head on a stick um, so that people would <coughs> know how brutal and powerful they were. Um, they were into all kinds of things of, of child sacrifice and, and just not good people, right? So, just before Jeroboam II became king, Assyria began to get weaker. Uh, they had some problems in their monarchy, their, in their, their, their kings and, and leaders, and it began, it began to get a little weak. So, Jeroboam becomes king, and God gives a word to Jonah to deliver to the king. Um, he gave him the word of the Lord, right? So this, this idea of a prophet. Jonah was that Israel was going to retake some land that they had lost. Moving that way, they were, the borders of Israel were going to expand because God sees and loves Israel, right? So Jonah speaks this word, and it happens. Jonah, what Jonah said came true. Israel's borders expanded, which makes Jonah what, more than likely? A hero. He's a national hero, right? Hosea and Amos, those punks over there getting kicked out of the country. Jonah's probably got a seat at the table of the king, eating, living it up, right? So they're like, forget Amos, kick him out. Let's keep hearing what Jonah has to say. Um, so with all that information, let's get back to Jonah 1.1. I told you this is a lot to put in here. I don't, you don't know where to stop and where to start. So now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, so if you're an Israelite hearing this story, you're thinking, yes, we love it when God's word comes to Jonah because good things seem to happen, right? National pride just at the thought of Jonah giving another word. <coughs> so uh, one more thing about this first verse, right? It, it sets kind of the stage for this book, the two characters we are mainly going to deal with, which is Jonah, the prophet, and the Lord God, right? This book is really about who the Lord God is, right? Who, who God is and reveals who Jonah, the prophet, really is as a representative of the people of Israel. So, put all this together, and when you add all that extra context in, the first verse may not contain a lot of detail, but it sets the stage for the next verse to kind of shock us more than maybe it would before. So, what did God say to Jonah, the son of Amittai, the Israelite hero? He says, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So knowing all that we know now, feel kind of the force of what is being said here, right? Three kind of imperative verbs that are being said here, right? Commands, arise, go, call, right? The word for arise here literally means get up with an exclamation point. Get up. It carries a kind of a sense of urgency. Get up and go, move. This is usually how God would speak to a prophet. We see it with Elijah in 1 Kings 17, 8 through 10. 
Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow to feed you. And what did Elijah do? So he arose and went to Zarephath. So the normal language, God the prophet, urgency, get up, go. But the next words are not normal in any way. Arise, get up, go to Nineveh. So kind of feeling what Jonah felt, right, with the audience, whoever heard this story or wrote this would think, get up and go to Nineveh, right? Two super abnormal things about what is going on here. First, Nineveh, of course, is a foreign nation, right? It's outside of Israel, making this the first time kind of unprecedented what happens here in Old Testament prophecy up to this point. It was normal for a prophet to speak about a foreign nation, right? Many prophets came uh, and declared judgment on foreign nations, judgment against foreign nations, and it would, that judgment would usually serve to be a comfort to Israel, right? I'm going to take care of the Assyrians. I'm going to blot the Assyrians out to protect you, my love, O Israel, right? But it would, God would be reminding these nations that one day they'd be judged or the prophecy would serve as a warning to God's people. Don't be like these people over here. Don't make an alliance with these people. They are not my people. They are evil. They are bad. God would use prophecy to keep his people, the Israelites, from disaster. But this is a different uh, prophetic word. This is not God giving a word to Jonah about a foreign nation. This is God telling Jonah to go to a foreign nation. This is God telling the prophet who has kind of been associated with national pride, expanding our borders of Israel to cross the border and to go to a foreign nation. He sends the prophet to the people of Israel to comfort or warn them to keep them from judgment usually, but the implication is that God is sending his prophet to another nation to either comfort or warn them and keep them from judgment. So this leads to kind of a bunch of questions because we know that God loves the people of Israel in the Old Testament. But does God love all the nations like in such a way that he would send his prophet to another country? So that's kind of the first shocking thing here that that a person would read then, right? God is calling a Jewish prophet to go to another nation with a message of comfort or warning, uh, trying to keep them from judgment. So the other shock goes to a whole other level. So it's not just a foreign nation. Go to the people of Nineveh, that great city. So the word for great here, which we'll see many times throughout this book, means significant, large, prestigious, important, even invaluable, right? It's a city. We, we've, we've seen Nineveh before, if you, if you haven't realized this. Genesis chapter 10 actually is, is a, is, is, tells us with the beginning of Nineveh. As Noah has, has got off the ark and resettled and his family is growing, Listen here, Genesis 10, 8. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Listen here. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. So, Nineveh was the first city upon which a foreign nation was founded, right? Assyria, these cruel, vicious, brutal, terrible people, the, the enemies of Israel. So God says, Jonah, get up and go to the heart of Assyria, to Nineveh, and preach my word, right? So just so you know how much hate the people of Israel have for the people of Nineveh, you're gonna, we're going to study a book here in a couple weeks, Nahum, which is a whole book, like, dogging on the evil of the people of Assyria, right? 
in the early church, Nineveh was used as a symbol of the devil. That's something that they would use to correlate, talking about the devil was uh, using Nineveh. So no Israelite was neutral when he heard the word Nineveh. The blood boiled, anger rose, not good. You want to stay as far away from Nineveh and Assyria as possible. So even the mention of it would, would probably bring anger or terror, one of the two, right? Either are they going to kill me or do I hate these people, right? So the last thing you want to do is go to them, especially as they are losing power, and give them a message of comfort or warning that keeps them from judgment, right? Especially if you're the prophet who represents Israel. So you want them to experience total destruction because they're your enemies. So now leads us to the third command of the verse. God said, call out against it, against Nineveh, this great city, for their evil. Same word we saw in 2 Kings 14 that described the evil that was going on during the reign of Jeroboam. So now this word is describing the evil and the calamity of the people of Nineveh, the Assyrians. So let's make the connection here. God sees evil and calamity in 2 Kings 14. What does he do? He speaks lovingly to them through his prophet Jonah. Now God sees evil going on in Assyria. What's he doing? He lovingly sends to them his prophet Jonah. So this phrase, their evil, talking about the Assyrians, has come up before me, literally means it has caused me concern. So the evil of the Assyrians has caused God concern. So there, there is tension here, right? And you kind of got to feel it. You got to put yourself in Jonah's shoes. You got to see this prophet who has expanded Israel's borders. God is telling him to get up and go to his enemies, the people who have, have terrorized your nation, who have terrorized other nations. Tell them God's word, knowing God's word may lead them to repent and keep them from being destroyed, right? So going anyway, first of all, would be a risk to your life. You're an Israelite in Nineveh speaking the word of God. Your own, you know, the Israelites have killed their own prophets. So you're going to go to a group of people who like to kill and tell them to turn from their ways and turn to God. I mean, your skin is, you're going to be a a skin rug in about a day, right, on somebody's floor. You're going to be that, right? So he goes there, right? Israelites didn't go to, to Nineveh. So he go, he, he's, he's supposed to go and speak this word. And he probably has this fear, well, what if, they, what if they turn? And then he's got to go back to Israel and say, yeah, I gave them the word from the Lord, and they, they turned back to God. What would his place be in Israel then, right? You just saved the enemy? You gave them this word, right? You're no longer a national hero. Now you're a national zero, right? So he's stuck in a, between a kind of a rock and a hard place here. So let's see what he decides to do in verse 3. Um, uh, so the author doesn't tell us. We don't know what Jonah's thinking. We just see that he gets this, this command or how he's going to make the decision he's about to make. We just got to wait. Until we find out in chapter 4, finally, what, what, what he was really thinking. So the author leaves out this piece of information, kind of keeps us in suspense, um, and, and knows that the word of God has kind of introduced some tension to the story. So what does Jonah do? Verse 3 starts, but, never a good sign when the word but shows up right after God has given a command. But Jonah rose, um, same action that he says in the beginning, arise, get up and go, same thing. Jonah gets up, like he says, Jonah got up and he rose to flee. So we're expecting Jonah to do what Elisha did, what the other prophets have done, go and do their job. But Jonah rises and runs. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish 
away from the presence of the Lord. So repetition, anytime you're reading scripture and studying it like this, you're looking for repeating words, you're looking for different things like this. So we see the repetition. Um, two times we see the phrase from the presence of the Lord. Three times we see the phrase, Tarsus, where is he going, right? What's he doing? We see it again and again, running from the Lord. Where is he going? Tarsus, Tarsus, Tarsus. So he's fleeing God. So it's the exact opposite of what the other prophets have done. God's word comes to Elijah, he goes. God's word came to Jeremiah, he goes. God's word came to Jonah, and he runs away the other direction. So he goes down, down. It, it, you keep start hearing this, this also, this, this imagery with the language. There's another phrase that's repeated twice there. Jonah went down. He went down to Joppa. He goes down into the ship. This is a theme, right? Jonah is turning and running from God. Therefore, his life is beginning to go down, down to Joppa, down into the ship. Um, he's, the author's starting to show us this downward spiral, this downward journey, in contrast to God, who is up and away, right? Um, so he goes, so let's think about this. Throw my map up there, please. So we got Joppa. We got Nineveh. Northeast, right? About 550 miles from Joppa, Israel, is Nineveh. So he's supposed to be going northeast. He goes down south physically and spiritually to Joppa. This port city is where he could find a boat. Gets on a boat to get to Tarshish. Now, if you notice, Tarshish is 2,500 miles. He is trying to get, at this time in the world, to the farthest known point away that he can possibly get to. Like, they didn't know about anything past the end of the Mediterranean Sea there. They didn't go out into the, if you did, you probably didn't come back, right, when you went out there. So that was like, that was the end of the world to them, was getting to Tarshish. That's where he wanted to get. That's as far away from God as he felt like he could get. So, running away from God. He pays the money, gets on the boat. He believes it's worth whatever he's got just to get this far away from God and this message, this command that he's been given. He wants to get so far away. There's some other scripture that talks about like uh, uh, in Tarshish is, is a place they don't even know who God is, right? God, the, the, who God, Yahweh God, they don't even know him there. He wants to get to a place where he doesn't even have to hear the name of Yahweh again, right? So he doesn't want it in his own life, want to hear or see God. Sounds like us sometimes, though, right? God wants us to do something, and instead of doing what it is God has called us to do, we turn, we run, we try to hide in the place farthest away from God that is possible. And when God, tell, you know, when God tells us to do something that we don't want to do, it didn't work for Jonah, as you're going to see. It doesn't, it doesn't work for us either. You cannot run far enough away to get away from God and what it is he has called you to do. Um, and, and Jonah has decided to give up on God at this point, but God does not decide to give up on Jonah. So verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. So right, we, we already said Jonah's not the only prophet he can call on here. Why does he not just you know, let, let Jonah go, call on Amos, call on Hosea, let them do this job. Jonah doesn't want to do it. Just, just let him sail off into the sunset, never be heard from again, right? God doesn't do that. He said God hurled or God threw a great wind upon the sea. We've already seen that word great before, right? Going to see it 11 more times. A great wind um, hurled by God, thrown a mighty tempest. So Jonah is trying to use a ship. He's trying to use the sea. He's trying to use the wind to run away from God. So what does God do? He uses the ship and the wind and the sea. It's, it's kind of like those, be, those things that he's trying to use to get away from God. They start to conspire together to work against Jonah to bring him back um, to God to keep him from running away 
But at this point, now Jonah's disobedience is not just affecting him, it's affecting other people. It says, verse 5, Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled, once again, re- repetition of words, God hurled the tempest. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. So we, now we have more characters. We've got these, these sailors, these experts at the sea, and it says they were scared. They were scared. They were tore up. They were throwing stuff off the boat. They, they, we're going down here is what they're thinking, right? So surely these guys had seen the storm before, but this one was bad because these guys were, were taking drastic measures. We might say it was supernaturally bad, right? So what did they do after that? It says, each cried out to his God. So likely sailors from different countries, different nations, believed in different gods, and they all, they're in a point that they're like, everybody, whoever your God is, start hollering to him and telling him to save us, right? They think they've offended one of these gods in some ways. So they start, everybody starts crying out, right? At the same time, they hurl everything off the sea. They hurl the cargo. So we've got this scene of prayer to these idols these these foreign gods um we've got this panic we've got fear jonah 1 5 then we see but again right total contrast jonah had gone down so he continues going down right third time we've seen that phrase um and now um uh, he he the disobedient kind of depressed prophet just i i'm gonna go lay down i've i've gone my ship i've got away from god let's just i'm gonna go down here and just shut my eyes and not think about it right that's what we do a lot of times right i'm just I'm just going to, we're going to stick our head in the sand and just, we're not going to deal with what it is God wants us to do. We're going to run from it. We're going to hide from it. Just shut our eyes. This is what Jonah's trying to do. He, his career as a prophet is over. He's never going to see his home again. We don't know if he's got a family, kids, anything. He's at a low point, just wants to get away spiritually, physically, descending towards spiritual death, right? Then look at the next phrase, and he was fast asleep. This dude, he, he conked out. He's hiding. He's, he's, he's done. So, stage is set. Jonah wakes up to an encounter from God. Verse 6. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Translation, what's wrong with you, bro? What is going on? Wake up. We're all about to die. What are you doing? Arise. Call out to your God. Hey, there's a guy down below that's dead asleep in this. Maybe he's got a God. Maybe it's his God that's mad. Call out to him. Arise. So we see that word again. Get up. Right, arise, get up, call out. Same word that Jonah heard in verse 2. Get up, call out to Nineveh, God says. This is get up and call out to your God. So Jonah wakes up thinking, I've just got away from God. And somebody wakes him up. Get up, call out to your God. Man, not again, this is God. Um, so um, you see this pagan foreign nation ship captain telling the prophet of God that he needs to call out to his God. So more words there, right? It says, perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So the captain on the ship realizes the storm is so bad they're in danger, perishing, need divine help. The prophet is running from God, and this pagan ship captain is the one that's going to kind of line him back up here. And it's not just him. So you get back up up on the, t- uh, the top of the ship there, and you see the, the sailors, and it says in verse 7, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know who, whose account this evil has come upon us. Very common practice used in that day, the idea to us of throwing a dice, right, or whatever, a group of people, and how, how they would do that to, to choose who it was to do something or who they felt was, was bringing disaster upon them. So they cast the lots. All right, this, uh, this guy's okay, this guy's okay, this guy's okay. And they finally get, and the lot falls to Jonah. Everybody stops and stares at Jonah, and immediately they start asking him questions. Continuing on, then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. And Jonah's response to them, 
uh, was this, enlightening to say the least, and he said to them, now keep in mind, this is the first time we hear Jonah speak in the whole story. Up to this point, he hasn't said a word. So what are his first words? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. Right? He identifies himself with a common term. This is what the Israelites would use to introduce themselves. I am a Hebrew to the foreigners, right? That the first words come out of Jonah's mouth, the prophet who's associated with the, the nationalistic pride, I am a Hebrew. This is who I am. This is my identity, right? And he continues, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Interesting, don't you think? Does he really? Or he wouldn't be on this boat heading this direction, right? So he elaborates, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. He says, I know the one who's in control of all this, the Lord of the heavens, the sea and the land. And in verse 10, it says, the men, then the men were exceedingly afraid. So Jonah fills some details about some dialogue they had. It continues, it says, for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So I would have think they, would have want, they should have went to him first because he already told them he was running from a, a God. And it seemed, took them a little bit of time to put that together, but they come to him, and the lot falls to him, and he tells them who he is. So he was fleeing from the presence of God, and, it's, and continuing, Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. The, so the urgency is rising. The sea gets more and more, more and more rough. You know, God is not going to give up on him. And the sailors are wondering what to do. Jonah's reply was probably a bit more than they're thinking. He says, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Pick me up and hurl me. We see it again. Hurled the storm, hurled the cargo. Now he's saying, throw me. Throw me off the boat, right? Jonah knows it's because of him that this is happening, but why this solution, right? Other solutions. First, Jonah could stop right there, get on his knees, repent to God. God, I am sorry. This is my fault. I will go to Nineveh. I, I can about guarantee you the storm would have stopped. He could have said, hey, turn this boat around. I've got to get to Nineveh. If you'll just start to turn it around, we'll be okay. Probably guarantee you that that storm would have stopped. But what does he say? Jonah says, I need to die. Seems Jonah would rather die at this point than obey God. And we think, silly Jonah, how stubborn. Yet us, so many times, we'd rather die than obey God. We would take ourselves to the point of death rather than following after what God has for us, right? So now we get a clue what's going on in Jonah's mind. We see him talking like this. I want to die. You know, he wants to die. We'll see it again where he talks like this, wanting to die, right? We hadn't gotten there yet. So why is Jonah so against doing this? Why is death preferable? Let's get back. Verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. So he told, they, they, he told them, throw me over. They're like, no, let's just go back. But Jonah has not said, let's go back. So storm continues to rage. They don't want to do it. They want Jonah to live. Eventually they realize this is what we got to do. Verse 14, therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So now these guys are calling out to God. These, these uh, pagan foreign people are calling out to God. Jonah refusing to call out to God. Verse 15 says they picked up Jonah and hurled him, fourth time we've seen this word, into the sea. So Jonah, put yourself in his shoes. You're picked up. You're thinking, okay, finally, this is going to be over. I'm going to die. This is great. Um, throw him overboard. This is what disobedience to God is looking like. He's thinking he thought he was getting away. He was going to live on a beach in Tarshish, and things were going to be okay. But now he's heading to his death. They throw him over. As soon as they do, it says the sea ceased from its raging. Um, the word raging is used throughout the Old Testament to refer to anger. So the, the anger of the Lord stopped right the judgment of God has been accomplished everything quiets down 
Um, the sailors see this. They, can you imagine these four, they, they do this and this thing just literally just choosh, calm. And it said, you know, they realized that, man, this guy's God was, he was it. He was the God. So they've had this personal encounter. It says, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So um, the, God, the prophet of God refuses, yet these, these foreigners, they, they come to God. So God's going to use, God's going to go to the foreign nations. He's going he's gonna to get his message to the world even when we are not obedient to his call to, to take his message to the world, right? Um, so uh, uh, we are all inclined to rebel against God. We can see from this first chapter, right? And it's going to be easy as we continue on, hope very quickly. Uh, to, to look down on Jonah at different times. But before we look down on him, we need to look at ourselves a little bit, right? Have, if I ask for a show of hands, we probably get, if we ever run from God's word in our life, right? We hear it week after week. We hear it and see it in Bible studies. We see it, we spend time in the word. We know what it calls us to do and we turn and we run, right? We're all guilty. We all flee. We all run from it. Um, why do we do it, though, is the question, right? Is it because we, we don't trust God? Is it because we think we know better than God? Is it because we prefer our ways over God's ways? Is it because we're afraid of what it might cost us if we follow God? Um, is it because we just don't like what, it, what he has to say? And we want to get as far away from it as we can. So when we see what Jonah is doing, ask, we need to be asking ourselves, why do we run from God's word? Why, what is it in our heart and life that needs to change so that we will be more obedient to the word of God? So, um, you know, um, so we, we run from it. We run from not only from God's word in our lives, but we run from speaking it into other people's lives uh, because God has called us. He has commissioned us to go out and make disciples, right? That's what Jesus told us to do, to go and tell other people, to bear witness about who Jesus is. Yet day after day, we run, we turn our back on that commission of God to make disciples and to tell people about Jesus. So What's the difference between us and Jonah, right? The effect is the same, right? God's word is not shared, whether it be by getting on a boat and trying to go to Tarshish or just simply being quiet and not talking about God's word when we have opportunities every day. So we get to the last verse of chapter 1. Um, a lot of disagreement about this. Uh, the Hebrew Bible actually takes this verse and puts it in the second chapter as the first verse. So um, the, the scene shifts. We are now in the water where Jonah is apparently not dead. So we are in Jonah's shoes now. We've hit the water. We don't know if Jonah can swim or not. Probably, I would think, probably not. Maybe he can float a little bit. But at some point, I don't care how much he wanted to die. You're in the ocean, and you realize that you're, you're, about, to, you're about to drown. I don't know about you all, but the one thing I do not ever want to do is drown. That, to me, that would be a terrible, terrible way to go. Um, so I can imagine that as you're kind of fighting again. I can only imagine that eventually he tries to fight against it, tries to stay up, but he begins to sink. Um, and it says in verse 1 of chapter 2, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. We're not told what type of fish, any details about the fish. Um, the fish may be the main character the book is known for, but apart from Jonah, you got three verses here, right? Kind of strange that we focus so much on the fish. Um, but we're all thinking, because it sounds, it's crazy, right? You're in a fish in, in three days, right? We, so now we got a guy inside the digestive tract of some fish intestines um, and, and s surrounded with waste and fat. It's just not a, it can't be a pleasant place. Um, there was, there was some, some guys, they found a whale carcass at one point on a beach, and they went into it and um, went 
walked into this carcass and said that the inside was like a small room. So uh, people could fit in the, in the, in the belly of a whale. And if you've seen, you know, we got video now and pictures of these massive, massive whales that are in the ocean that, you know, the whale itself is as big as a building. So you can only imagine the size of this, of this stomach, but still how he, how he's able to live in there is a thing of God, right? The author of Jonah doesn't focus on answering that kind of question. Obviously, God is in control of what's going on here, including this fish. It says God appoints the fish. God is in control of the fish, right? The author just accepts that this is a miracle. It's, it's a divine act. It's beyond us replicating it or explaining it. We don't need to try to explain it or imagine how to replicate it and do it again. God is doing it, right? We see this word swallow. It's used other times in the Bible. It describes judgment of God. Um, you see it, Psalm 21, 8, 9 says, Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. So the picture of the fish swallowing Jonah is the picture of God's judgment, right? He is finally in the judgment of God, yet at the same time, the fish is keeping Jonah alive. So we see God's judgment, God's salvation through judgment, right? That happens a lot of times for us. We, we are saved through, through, the, through the judgment of God, right? So it, it helps us connect God's rescue of Jonah from death to how God is bringing us from death to life, right? Out of judgment, there is salvation through Jesus Christ, right? God doesn't want Jonah dead. He wants to bring Jonah to a place that he's going to be obedient to what it is he has him do. So now our action has finally slowed down a little bit. We've had Jonah running. We've had Jonah in a storm. We've had all these conversations. Now it's slowing down, and we get to watch the first encounter between Jonah and God. So then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. It's the first time we see the Hebrew word pray in here until now we've just heard call on your God. Just speak to him. But now we see pray. In fact, uh, you know, not one time in the first chapter does Jonah say anything to God. But now for the first time, Jonah decides it's time to start talking to God. I'm in a bad, bad spot like us, right? We, we run, run, run until we find ourselves in a place of dire straits and no hope. So now who do we turn to? Right, God. I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. So apparently being thrown into the ocean, being swallowed by a fish has an effect on Jonah. He calls out to God. Um, he, he, he was in distress, as he says here, right? The Lord answered to him. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. All kinds of time we could spend on Sheol here. We have no time to do that, so we're going to have to move on. But it's the reference to a place where the dead uh, reside, where they, where they are at, right? A place of utter and complete hopelessness, no return from Sheol, Right, so basically Saul, Jonah saw himself headed to Sheol, not just to death, but eternal hopelessness. And in that moment, as he's in that moment of eternal, uh, heading towards eternal hopelessness, he said, I don't want to go there. I called out to God in my distress. Jonah knew that God was his only hope for not heading to Sheol. Verse 3, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. So the wording here, Jonah attributes everything that has happened to him to God. You cast me into the deep. Your flood surrounds me. Your waves, your billows passed over me. So Jonah goes from talking about God. In verse 2, he talks to God in verse 3, right? He's, he's switched, we switched uh, who he's, the, the tense he's speaking in, right? Goes on, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, all your waves and billows over me, right? The sailors didn't throw me off the boat. You threw me off the boat, God. 
Jonah 4. Then he said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. So Jonah sees himself banished from God's presence, and on the way to death, he turns and looks to God again. The temple, the holy place where God dwells, it's kind of a turning point, right? When you think of the whole story, starting with Jonah fleeing from the presence of the Lord, now he's turning toward the presence of the Lord, which he's drowning. He elaborates more, verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. But then in verse 6, yet you. So I love this. You've got to put exclamation there. Yet you, right? And, and so many times in, play, in, in the Bible and in our lives, when things seem hopeless, when things seem uh, beyond repair, we see yet God, but God, right? But God, you brought, my, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Brought up, it's the same word uh, in Amos that he uses. He's, in Amos 2.10, he says, also, it was I who brought you up out of Egypt. So just as God brought his people and rescued them from terrible slavery in Egypt, Jonah says, you brought up my life out of the pit. You took me out of that terrible place, right? So th- this picture of bringing up, we're already beginning to contrast chapter 1. What do we keep seeing in chapter 1? He went down to go down to go down to go down. Now he's at the bottom. And now we see this contrast, right? He starts to move up, right? He's, he's coming up from the bottom. Everything Jonah has done has been downward to the depths of Sheol, but at his lowest, at our lowest, God meets us at our lowest point, right? And begins to bring him up um, and brings him out of this pit. The word also means grave. He continues, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Just again, picture Jonah drowning. He's at the point of starting to suck that water in, right? The the time has come, and he remembers God. He remembers Yahweh. He says, the Lord I remembered. I remembered Yahweh. My prayer came to you. He says in verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. So we just plainly read this verse. We see Jonah is glad that at this point, at the lowest point in his life, he's not put his hope in a vain idol, in in a false god, in something... Um, the word vain it uses here, it's the combination of breath and emptiness, right? From the depths of the ocean floor, Jonah's out of breath, idols are empty, and offer no hope to give him breath, right? They, they don't offer that. They're just a, a, an idol, a snare, right? An idol will, sna- will snare us, bring us in. It's deceptive, right? It, 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 it promises you a lot of things, this idol does, but when you need it the most, it can't offer you what you need. If he had been falling after an idol, he's at the bottom of the ocean. He looks to this idol for breath, and there's no breath to be given. But yet he is following after God, so that breath is there, right? So only in the hopes of our depths of despair, Jonah says, is this great word, the steadfast love of God. Great word in the Old Testament. In English, it would be said, hesed is the Hebrew, hesed. I think I'm saying it correctly. Um, So we don't have a word for this in English, but it's like, Love, kindness, loyalty, faithfulness, and mercy all wrapped into one. All wrapped into one. It's a beautiful word. So next verse continues. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. So Jonah says, in contrast to these idolaters, I will sacrifice to you, Lord. I will pay my vows. There's some thought there. We can't get into it. Is he kind of at this point still where he's here at the bottom of the sea? Is he like saying, like those mariners up above, these, these idolaters, I'm looking to you. So... Then we come to five English words here that may be the theme of the entire book. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. The Lord saves. Salvation belongs to him, meaning the Lord is sovereign over salvation. He alone is able, and he alone has the authority to save. He saves completely. 
Look at verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. Fish had traveled, apparently, all the way back to Joppa. So we get the picture here. It's not pretty. Put yourself in Jonah's shoes again. Humbling scene. You're not vomiting. You are the vomit, right? He's not sick. He, has, he is the sickness. He has been vomited out. You're laying there, fish guts, fish vomit all over you. It's how Jonah ends. Um, you read commentaries on Jonah, uh, of stuff I'm looking at. You find lots of uh, thoughts about Jonah's prayer here. Not, not everybody agrees on this. But let me ask you, as we read through that prayer, did you notice anything, right? Anything that doesn't seem quite right about that prayer? Anything that maybe would indicate that Jonah's heart still is not where it needs to be, right? He is acknowledging God as the, as the Savior, but still not in the right place. What's missing, right? You look back over all those verses, you notice first, no point does Jonah confess his sin. At no point does he does the, 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 uh, express a desire to repent. Not one time, right? Significant contrast, because with every other psalm where sin is recognized, when David would write a psalm and recognize a sin, what does he do? As if when the sin caused him distress, he repented, right? He turned from, he confessed. None of this language here in this prayer in Jonah 2. No point does he ask for forgiveness. So could it be that Jonah is not taking responsibility still for what has happened to him? Notice his language is all about what God has done to him. God has cast him into the deep. God has hurled him into the sea. God has surrounded him with the flood. God has passed over him with waves and billows. Now one more level here. Notice that the only thing Jonah does mention about himself are the positive things. He called to the Lord. He looked to God's, towards God's temple. He remembered the Lord. He makes sacrifices and vows, right? So there begins to be a sense when you look at it that way that this prayer is still all about Jonah, right? So 23 times in these eight short verses does Jonah talk about himself. He actually talks relatively little about God and his mercy. So now we looking back and see where God's mercy is in there, but it seems like Jonah maybe is not getting this yet, right? So um, uh, but at the beginning, it said that God heard him and answered him from this prayer. So then in the middle, it says that God brought his life up from the pit. So that's three phrases in this entire prayer focused on what God did for him. But in all three of those phrases, did you notice that Jonah actually focuses on the good things he did to bring that about? The things that he, I called, you answered. I cried, God heard my voice. God brought up my life from the pit because I remembered the Lord. Even the phrase in the verse 7, I remembered the Lord, is different from Almost anywhere else we see it in Scripture. Almost every other time in the Bible, it is the Lord remembers his people. The Lord has mercy. The Lord does this. It's focusing on God remembering his people, not on his people and their, their piety in remembering who God is, right? So uh, just, ask, just putting those questions out there. We don't know that that's where it was at, but different guys can look at it different ways and you see it, right? So a bit more. Moving quick, I promise. It's impossible. It's possible that Jonah's prayer was completely authentic, albeit imperfect. None of us have perfect prayer lives. We don't have to be perfect. Um, but I would like to, uh, I think we got to conclude from this, though, that at least there's still more work to be done in Jonah's heart. So chapter 3, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. It's familiar language, just like 1-1. Word of the Lord came to Jonah. First five words of chapter 3 are the exact same as the first five words of chapter 1. But then uh, uh, as we get to chapter 3, we've got a little more story what's happening here. So we know that Jonah's lying, we don't, well, we don't know exactly, we don't know here, we don't know where Jonah was. Is he still literally lying on the beach covered in fish guts when the Lord of the Lord comes to him? Does this happen the next day? Does it happen a week later? Does it happen months later? Does he walk, get up, go clean up, and go home, and eventually the word of the Lord comes back to him? We don't know. All we know is that it came again. And this focus it, it, is where on God's word, it came again to Jonah, but there's only the only 
This leads us to the only part of the verse that's different, right? The second time. Jonah has a second chance. Obviously a story, a theme we see over and over in Scripture. God is a God of second chances, right? We, we, we live, we mess up, we, can, we, we should, unlike maybe what Jonah's doing here, we confess, we come back to God, God gives us another chance, another chance, another chance, right? So what will, God, what will Jonah do with his second chance, right? Verse 2 tells us what the Lord said to him, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Same words from Jonah 1-2, except we now, in, in, in here, we see arise, we see go, same things to Nineveh. Yes, great city, same thing. But now the last part of the verse, different than chapter 1. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me, is what he says in verse chapter 1 verse 2 now in verse 3 to instead of a focus on the evil of Nineveh the focus is on the message right the the language repeats itself so much he says give this he says in Hebrew it's proclaim to the city the proclamation that I proclaim to you so that's part of this language thing this Hebrew writer is proclaim the message proclaim proclaim go do it tell it tell it tell it is what he's saying here right you don't have the option of saying what you want. You, God is being very specific here. Tell this city exactly what it is I say to you. Um, this is clearly not a situation where Jonah disobeyed the first time, and then because of his disobedience, God changes his mind about what he's going to do. Uh, um, God has not changed his mind at all. The command is still the same. It's exactly the same. It's even clearer. Now, Jonah, um, like I said the first time, go to Nineveh. Now, when you go there, say exactly what it is I tell you to say. So what does Jonah do? Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, right? He doesn't run this time according to the word of the Lord. Interesting that in chapter 1, Jonah says nothing. He just disobeyed. He just turned and and ran. Chapter 3, again, Jonah does not respond to God that we see. He just obeys. He just does it. We don't know where Jonah was when God gave him this. We don't know how long of a journey it would have been from where he's at. But like we saw on the map, think about 500 miles. Um, So at at least a month's journey if not longer. 500 miles, it's a long way to drive, much less walk, right? So he's going to take a minute to get there. So we got some silence for an unknown period of time as he goes to Nineveh, the place he hates, the place all of Israel hates. Now we shift to Nineveh. Verse 3, now Nineveh was exceedingly great, three days journey in breadth. Jonah is going to an important city, as I said, that belongs to God. Even Nineveh, the same way that God calls us to go live in cities around the world, right? They are important to him. Nineveh is not the Assyrian city. Nineveh is God. It's God's city, right? It got, belongs to God. Then we have this phrase, three days journey in breadth. Lots of, of talk between commentators and scholars about exactly what this means. Was it the distance uh, that it was at the time it took to walk the city? Was it the distance of the city? Not exactly sure. Not, we got not, not enough time to spend a lot of time there. But, um, but many believe that, it would, that the visit to that city would take about three days to walk across it or around it or to completely visit it. So in other words, I think it was a very, very large city. Um, so um, uh, Jonah gets to Nineveh. And let's listen to what happens, how quickly it happens. So it talks about it being a three-day journey, but it says Jonah began to go into the, into the city going a day's journey. So he gets one day in, doesn't even make it through the whole city, just at the start of his journey. Tension, an Israelite, a day in, standing in the middle of Nineveh, a Syrian city, people looking at him. What, is he scared? Is he angry? I don't know. But he gets, the author doesn't tell us. Author's focused on one thing, the word God has given Jonah to proclaim. One short day walking to Nineveh, Jonah calls that, says he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And that's it. Don't you wish I could do this in five words? And here we are 50, 53 minutes later, right? We're still not to the end, right? Five, he, he says it, 40 days 
and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's all we get from this message, right? Eight-word sermons, all we have. In the Hebrew, it's actually only five, right? Now, once again, commentators, scholars assume that there was more to this, that the author is just giving us the theme of what the, what the message was. So it could have been, maybe not. We see this book of Acts, the sermons of Peter and Paul. It's believed that those are not entire, that there was more to it, that the, the authors stuck to the main themes of what was being said. But something else may be going on here with Jonah, right? You don't have the usual preface, preface from a prophet. He doesn't say, the Lord God says, or this is the word of the Lord. It seems like here in Jonah 3 that the author is deliberately kind of emphasizing just this, this brief, even kind of terse message, right? 40 days, repent, or you're all dead, right? Like, like Jonah doesn't want, he doesn't want to give this grand uh, entrance to it. He just wants to say it and get out. So we don't hear anything about why it's being overthrown, how it, that it can't be overthrown, nothing, what Nineveh can do to change it, nothing. It's just, uh, it seems to be no good news. It's just 40 days and overthrown. But then we see in verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believe God. What? The people of Nineveh? The cruel, barbaric, evil Assyrians, they believe God, right? It's the same language, this idea of belief that the Bible uses to describe Abraham, the father of Israel, in Genesis 15, 6. And it says, and he believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. So the same idea of faith and belief that Abraham has, the Ninevites have, right? The same language that he uses, that God uses in the covenant between him and Abraham, God uses here with these people in Nineveh, right? So Jonah 3, 5 says, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So this was common practice, ancient world. You realize you're, you're in sin, you are against God. You, you take off your clothes, you put on a sackcloth. It barely covered what it needed to cover. You were, just, you were showing yourself to be bare um, and, and almost naked in front of your uh, God with nothing, nothing left to, to hide. You're expressing your humility, your grief, your sorrow over sin, which are things that are involved in true repentance, right? Um, grief, uh, hatred of our sin, right? And it says, but the king of Nineveh, the king of the Assyrians, heard of what had happened, and he relinquishes his authority. He gets off his throne. He removes his robe. He covers himself with sackcloth, just like everybody else. And then verse 7 says, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. So that is some extreme fasting. No water, no food. And matter of fact, not even just the people. Your dog, your cat, your cow, your goat, whatever. Nobody gets anything for the next little bit of time until we get right with God, right? Now, we know the animals can't pray and repent, but there, there is, you know, we, we, we see this again in, in the book of Joel, this idea of the praying and fasting and, and like total repenting and a total praying and total fasting over everything in the land, right? God speaks it in Joel 1.18 and a couple other places in Joel. So the point is that the king of Nineveh is calling everything within his dominion to look to God, everything that he possibly could. This is, this is revival on a, on a national scale. And the king says, all people, man and beast, are to be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God, capital G, God, right? Not just call out to him. Look at the rest of the verse, verse 8. Let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hands. Let everyone turn and repent. This Hebrew word for repentance occurs four times in Jonah. All four times are in these verses, uh, in these three verses, 8, 9, and 10. King says in verse 9, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. 
So wow, think about what the king just said. Who knows, right? The king knows, he realizes, even more than John, it's up to God. It's up to God what's about to happen here. There's no guarantee that if they repent, if they put this sackcloth on, that anything's going to change. They don't know. Only God knows. Only, uh, the king knows that only God is going to determine what God is going to do. Verse 10 says, When God saw what they did, how they had turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Wow. So we see God said that they, he, God saw what they did, and notice the explanation of that. God, it was not that God saw their fasting and their sackcloth, although that was important. God saw how they turned, how they repented, how they turned away from what they were doing and turned to him. Four times we see this word in those three verses. Turned from what? Their evil way, right? They turned away from the evil that they had done. Um, God is not changing his mind. God here, by, by not doing this, God's will is settled here in the book of Jonah, just as it is in all of history. Nineveh was going to be destroyed because of their sin. And that's what God said. That's what they absolutely deserved. Yet God in his mercy sends a mediator, Jonah, right? We see this picture of Jesus again to tell them that. So by his mercy, they would repent of their sin and he would relent of the judgment he was going to bring upon them. This is the gospel, right? We see the gospel here in the Old Testament through a, a lesser version of Jonah. But this, this same thing, the mediator comes and says, turn to God, repent, and turn from your sins. Ultimately, we know the Assyrians, this doesn't last long. They turn, they turn back to their evil ways. They end up conquering Israel in, in, in a number of years, right? But this is us, right? We, the gospel, the, we deserve the consequences of our sin. We deserve eternal death. We deserve the penalty due our sin. But God sends not Jonah, but he sends Jesus right on our behalf. Repent, Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near right? He made repentance and forgiveness of sins possible by his blood for us, right? So that's the takeaway there from Jonah 3 for us. Now, we're almost there. Y'all are like, Charles can't ever do any more of these, because if he's got any more than 48 verses, we're never going to get to leave, right? Verse 4, chapter 4 of Jonah, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. This verse is, is, should be shocking to us in its impact. Uh, It's not just that he was mad, the word is like exceedingly, right? He was flaming hot mad. Like he was irate, like seeing red. Uh, my, Kim's grandmother has a saying, uh, older lady been around a while, that when she gets mad, she sees red devils. That's what she says. I see red. You know, that's, so that was my idea when I thought about this flaming hot mad. Like this, he's seeing red devils. He's so mad right now, right? So um, it makes Jonah angry. The, the king of Nineveh expressed hope that God might turn from his anger. God does. Jonah is so mad, and now in verse 2, and he prayed to the Lord. Only other time we saw Jonah pray was when he was at the depths of his despair. Now we see him again after God saves Nineveh, but his prayer is very different this time. He said, oh Lord, is it not what I said? Oh Lord, it's like the word is like, alas, now Lord, Yahweh. So he's, he uses the covenant name for God. He uses the, that proper name representing and why is that name the proper name? Because it's, it's for the people of Israel. This, this is the God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. Israel. Israel only is what Jonah's kind of getting at here. Alas, Lord, Yahweh, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. So now, first time, chapter 4, we get here, we discover the real reason why Jonah turned and ran from God. Why Jonah did everything he could to get as far away from God as possible. First chapter, we point out, author hasn't shown us this, right? We had our guesses, but he's, the author has left us guessing until this moment. Now he's ready to show us. The this, this stage is set. Jonah shows us, why did, you, why did you run from God? Jonah says, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We see that word again, has said, and relenting from disaster. 
So Jonah says, I knew you were going to save these people because that's who you are. And that's why I didn't want to come here. Not only did I not want to come, that's why I wanted to get as far away from you as I possibly could because of who you are, right? So Jonah, as a leader, a prophet among the people of Israel, um, loved this description of God's mercy and grace and forgiveness when he's lying at the bottom of the ocean, drowning, right? This hesed, this love, kindness, faithfulness, all encompassed in one word. It's a beautiful word that, that represents all that. When it's God's covenant love to his people towards the people of Israel, like, he uses it here. He's like mad because he's like, that's our word. This, this all-encompassing love that you have is supposed to be for Israel. It's not supposed to be for anybody else. It's just for us, right? It's just, just to send to us. That was their verse. That was their God. It was Jonah's verse, Jonah's word. So he continues on in verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, Yahweh, this patient, uh, forgiving, merciful king who is showing steadfast love to my enemies, for that matter, to the enemies of your people, he says this. He says, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. So you see, in this second time, we've seen this in Jonah. First time chapter 1 where he says, just throw me overboard and let me die. So we wondered why Jonah just didn't obey then. Well, now he's telling us, right? He would rather die than serve this kind of merciful God who would show his mercy beyond the people of Israel to the world. So this leads the Lord to ask him a question in verse 4. The Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Now, before we think about the question that God asks, let's make sure to know what God doesn't do. First, God doesn't address Jonah's request to die. Moves right past it, slides right over it. Second, yet again, God doesn't give Jonah what he deserves, which should have been right then. Just, all right, you want to die? Just foot on you, right? Just twist it in a little bit. Because really, does God want Jonah, does Jonah want God to really be just, to show justice here? Because if so, then he would have got, he should have got smushed right then, right? Jonah should have been smushed wherever it was back when he ran and went to Joppa. So God is showing the exact attribute to Joah, kindness, forgiveness, steadfast love, that Jonah is objecting to in God that he's showing to other people. So God kindly, tenderly asked Jonah a question. The first of three questions we're going to see here real quick. We see these questions from God to Jonah that are intended to lead us to examine ourselves. Here, right? When we are prone to question uh, the justice of God, or being angry at his justice or his lack of justice that we see in the world. We see so many terrible things happening and we question why. Why, are you, why, why is this happening, right? He says, is it well for us to be angry? So listen how Jonah responds in verse 5. God says, is it, is, it, is it well for you to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city. Jonah went out, doesn't reply, turns his back on God, ignores God's question. And then listen to this, notice where he goes. He goes out to the east. Well, if you remember from the map, he came in from the east. So he continues, he's heading out the opposite. He's not even going home. He's out, heading out the opposite direction. He entered from the west. He's no hurry to get back to Israel. Good reason, right? Let's imagine he rolls back into Israel. Where have you been? I've been in Nineveh. What, what are you doing in Nineveh? Telling them to turn back to God. Well, surely they didn't do that, did they? Yeah, they did. God was going to put judgment on them, but now he's sparing them. They would have they killed him on sight, right? So he doesn't want to go back there, so he's no longer going to be a hero. He just helped the enemy who, like we said, one day, very soon is coming. They're going to come and conquer. They're going to be the, they, these are the people that God is going to use to bring judgment on the Israelites. And they've just got a reprieve for a certain amount of time because of, of Jonah. So now Jonah is defiance of God east of the city, and it says he made a booth for himself there. The word booth, you, we've heard about this a few weeks ago. Anthony was talking about it. 
you know, they would stay in these booths during their wilderness time uh, as they were leaving Egypt. Um, it was where the Feast of Booths come from. So Jonah makes one of these booths that we just heard about a little while back. Um, basically, it would have been like a little makeshift shelter, leaves, branches. Um, plenty of places he probably could have stayed in Nineveh. People in Nineveh probably loved Jonah. He's the man, he, just, he just saved all them, right? I mean, you, the king probably said, you can stay in the palace if you want. But he goes out and makes, makes a little hut for himself. Sits in the booth. Let's watch what happens next. He wants, he wants out of Nineveh, right? He's sitting out here on the east of the city. He sat under it in the shade until he should see what would become of the city. Jonah just wants to watch, man. The language here seems to indicate that he's like still maybe hopeful that God will still destroy the city. He's hoping for a little Sodom and Gomorrah action to kind of happen here real quick. Maybe, maybe I just talk some sense into him and maybe he'll just rain some fire down. Maybe he'll, and, but then he finally gets to the point. He basically says, God, kill me or kill them. One of the two. That's kind of what he's getting at here. Either kill me, get rid of me, or get rid of them. So he sits there and it says, the Lord God, continuing on, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So now in Jonah 4, 6, the Lord God, Yahweh, once again, appointed, right? He appointed a fish. He's appointed the wind, the storm. He appoints, God controls, is in control of everything. He's sovereign. He appoints it, right? So we've seen it before. If first, the great fish. This time it's a plant. We're not exactly sure what kind of plant, but it's, obviously it's growing large enough to cover him to provide shade from the sun. So in, God, in Jonah's anger, God is providing shade. Um, just as God appointed a great fish to save Jonah, now God appoints a plant to save him from his discomfort that he is experiencing. God wants Jonah to save Jonah from his physical discomfort. At the same time, what God really wants is to save him from his spiritual evil and the wickedness that's filling his heart, right? So thick irony here. Jonah's sitting there outside the evil city, hoping that God's going to rain fire. He's not He's ignoring the evil in his own heart like we do so many times, right? We want to look at other things that we see that God is not taking care of. God, go take care of that thing over there, handle that business, and we ignore what is going on inside of our own heart and our own life, right? We, uh, we skip right over that part. That's okay. But no, God, you need to fix that right there. And if you don't, I'm going to be upset about it, God. You need to do that when we're not doing our own part in our own life. So verse 6, will Jonah get the point? The Lord God appointed a plant and made it come over Jonah. So it might be a shade to save him from his, his discomfort. So listen here. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. We hear, see this word exceedingly again, right? First time we see Jonah happy, whole book. Wasn't happy when God called him to go to Nineveh. Wasn't happy when the storm came. Wasn't happy about the fish, I'm sure. Wasn't happy about the second call to go to Nineveh. Nor was he happy when the, the Ninevites repented. Now Jonah's happy. What's he happy about? He's happy about a plant. He's happy about some shade. Um, the language of the Lord says that Jonah rejoiced with great joy, exceedingly glad. He was joyful, that he was so joyful that he was joyful, right? It's the exact opposite of verse 1, where he was exceedingly displeased. Now he's exceedingly glad. See the, the parallel here. God gave mercy to Nineveh. Joseph was exceedingly angry. God gave mercy to him. God, Jonah was exceedingly happy. God meets Jonah's, Nineveh's needs. Jonah gets very angry. God meets Jonah's needs. Jonah is very glad right? Verse 7, though, says, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it, that it withered. Same word, appointed. God is in control again. God appointed a fish, a plant, and now a worm that attacked the plant. little military term here, right? The worm is an instrument in God's hand. It, like, it attacked the plant, right? God withdraws his mercy, but God's not finished. It says, when the sun arose, we continue on, God appointed. See this language again, 
fish, plant, worm. Now God is telling the sun what to do. And it says, a scorching uh, and a wind, a scorching east wind coming from the desert. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. The word beat down here, another military term, the, uh, this idea of attacking him. The sun is attacking Jonah. It's made, he, wants, he wants to pass. He thinks, okay, I might be dying now, right? This is, it's coming. He was faint. He's fully exposed to the heat. It's like Jonah at this point is fully exposed to jo- God's justice and judgment bearing down on him. Again, Jonah asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. Second time in this chapter, Jonah's saying this, right? It's hard to tell based on the language, but earlier Jonah prayed to the Lord, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. Here, Jonah is not, doesn't seem like he's talking to God. He's talking to himself. But literally, the language is like he asked himself to die. He's saying to himself, it is better for me to die than to live. He's not even addressing God here in this point. So the first time in, uh, Jonah said this is when, Uh, God's judgment was withdrawn from Nineveh. Now he's saying this when he experiences God's judgment in his own life. So in other words, he wants judgment for them so much that he would die for them to have judgment. And he wants mercy for himself so much that if he doesn't get it, he's willing to die for it, right? So Jonah at this point is completely inward, not not turned towards God. He is only preoccupied with himself. He is choosing isolation from God over reconciliation with God. Yet we see God still not giving up on Jonah. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Second time, God responds with a question to Joseph's, Jonah's request to die. The question is very similar. Once again, do you do well to be angry? He says, are you right to be angry? Are you right to be so mad? With the repetition here, the, the author's once again trying to highlight a theme. What right do you have to demand God's mercy for you and God's justice for other people? What right do you have? To, everything for me, God, make it good. Everything for them, make it bad. That's not who God is, and that's not who, who we should expect God to be, right? And this time, God adds, you do well to be angry for the plant. In other words, is it right for you to be angry for a plant? For a plant? God is showing Jonah his foolishness here, the foolishness of his heart, and the heart of all of Israel, right? And Jonah takes the bait, because God says, is it all right for you to be angry over a plant? And Jonah says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. He repeats the word twice. I'm angry, angry enough to die, right? He confessed that it was more important for him that a plant lives than the people of Nineveh to live. It's more important for him to be comfortable than for them to be saved. So we see his self-centeredness, and, and this is where it leads. And his, his last word in the book of Jonah, the last word we hear from Jonah in the entire book is literally the word death. That's what, it, that's what he ends with saying, right? And it sets the stage for God to have the final word. Verse 10, and the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. The emphasis on you is because God is contrasting himself with Jonah, right? He said, Jonah, you you have pity, you feel sorrow, you have concern, you express such strong emotion over a plant. It's here one day and gone the next. Uh, let's think about your relationship with that plant. You didn't, you didn't do anything to it. You didn't water it and raise it up. You didn't, you, didn't do anything. you didn't plant the seed. You didn't make it grow. It came one night and it was gone the next. And God is, uses the same word here that's been used multiple times in this book when the mariners pleaded to God that they wouldn't perish, when the Ninevites pleaded to God that they wouldn't perish. Now here's Jonah, emotionally distraught at the point of death, not over an entire population of people, but over a plant that has perished. The contrast is clear. The Lord continues, Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? Or is it not right for me to pity, to be concerned for, to feel sorrow and emotion for Nineveh? 
God kind of says, you question my righteousness, you, whether I'm right to be concerned about people whom I created, people whom I've made, not overnight, but over years in the womb of their mother and, and children. It says, you're saying, I don't have a right to be concerned for them, but you have a right to be concerned over a plant. We're seeing that here, that God is saying clearly and truly that he is not just God over Israel, that he is God over all nations, right? And it's going to take, Israelites aren't going to get this for a long time, right? And some still, still to this day, don't get it right? They think that it's just them and nobody else, right? They all, everyone belongs to God, right? Everyone is the concern of God, and that's the, a significant point in this book, that many people would have thought that God is, is not concerned about the Ninevites, that, that God would possess pity towards their evil or mercy. Um, and if you asked a Jewish person, especially at that time, should, should Gentile cities experience the mercy of God? And they would say no, right? But to hear that now, if, would we say that? Do, do the people of, of Hamas and Iran and, and all, you know, these people that are attacking, do they deserve the mercy of God? They do. And, man, they're doing some terrible, terrible things. But they still, and, and, and while we can want justice for that with God, we also should be wanting and praying for the mercy of God in that situation that they would see the true God and turn to him rather than, continuing in their evil ways. Um, so it, it's, it's, you know, it, it, he finishes there, should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. So interesting, uh, question, ends on a question. Um, and we see this phrase about the right hand and the left hand. We see it in Joshua 23, 6, where God talks about, uh, talks about the scripture is what he's speaking to here, uh, that he gave his people do not let it depart from your right or your left hand, the, the, my word that you have. The Israelites had the word of God. Guess what they didn't have in Nineveh? They didn't have the scripture. They didn't have the book. They didn't have God's law. They didn't have God's word. Now we know from the rest of scripture, from Romans tells us that what? They had the law written on their hearts. Obviously they knew right from wrong because when they were told to stop doing evil, the king of Nineveh realized they were doing evil and they repented of it. But it's not that they didn't know right from wrong. They did. They stopped. They knew they'd done evil. But what they lacked was God's word that told them what to do and how to live by faith in God. That was the special revelation that only Israel had. So here, this is important. So right, As a result of not having God's word, they didn't know what they needed to do until what happened? Until God sent a prophet to proclaim to them his word and what they needed to do. They didn't know what to do until God provided somebody to tell them what God was saying. Repent or experience judgment. So do you realize what this means? That the, the people of Nineveh, they're a picture of, of the world that is unreached, right? They have the law of God on their hearts. But that's why we work so hard to get the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth, right? Because until, until they have that word, how can they know how can they know what to do? So it's our job to get that word out into the world and out into the people, right? Nineveh is, is a people, a picture of the people who are under judgment of the sin of God, but they couldn't be saved from their judgment until somebody spoke God's word to them. So that's what we're, we're, we're called to do, right? We're called to be concerned about the world and the masses of the world. So ends with a question. Only, book, only two books of the Bible in that way, but no resolution really here. No, no idea of what Jonah said or did from this point. Um, it's pretty clear that the author kind of leaves it that way on purpose so that, um, that we, we, have to, we have to finish the story on our own, right? We've got to decide how we're going to respond. Um, 
One guy says it's primarily the reader on whom God's final word lands, the reader who is left to ponder the meaning, the reader who must decide what action to take next, right? The author in, intends for us to end this book by examining our hearts and minds, right? Um, Jonah knew about the character of God in his head. He knew who he was. He knew who he was. But because God really wasn't found in his heart, he turned and kept, you know, he, he knew God was a God of mercy. But because he didn't have that, that idea in his heart, he, w- he didn't want to take the message to the people who hadn't heard it. He decided that he wanted it for himself. And for his people, he loved it for himself. He just didn't love it for anybody else because it wasn't in his heart. So it's possible sometimes for us to have good theology, good biblical understanding of who God is and how God loves and how he loves the world, yet it doesn't connect from here to here and we don't go out into the grocery store or our workplaces or to other countries or to wherever and take that message because we know it, we like it for ourselves but it doesn't connect enough in our heart to get it out to the people of the world. So sometimes we can be Jonah, right? This book is a mirror for us to kind of put up and, and look at ourselves and see um, the, the struggle in there. So that was super long. <laughs> and it, for, for that, that it was long, I apologize, but um, that, was, that was the word uh, that I had. And like I said, your pastor does an amazing job cramming that into uh, 40, 45 minutes maybe an hour every week. You know, I think it only took him an hour to do like 150 verse chapters of Psalms. It took me an hour and 15 minutes to do uh, four chapters of Jonah. So anyway, I appreciate you all and your time, and he will be back next week, and we'll get right back into it um, for the next few weeks. Um, I can't remember the date, but I think we're going to take a little bit of a break here around the holidays and come back at the first of the year here after a few more books. All right, so let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. God, I love you. Thank you for this day and this time and these that are here, God, I pray. Um, I, I know that your word does not return void. And I pray, God, that um, as we heard this word today, God, that we would use this book of Jonah and, and, and use it as a mirror in our lives to um, reflect, um, maybe where, see where our heart is. Do we have a heart for the world? Do we have a heart for people, God? Do we understand all of these things in our head? And we love to have them for ourselves. We love your, your love and your kindness and your faith and your justice and your mercy when it applies to us and our sin and our lives and you rescuing us from the depths of our despair, Father. But do we want it for other people? Do we want it for our enemies? Do we want it for those who hate us? Do we want it for those who do not love you and do not love your justice? Do we want your love and your mercy and your grace to fall on them? I pray, God, that we would have a heart for them, a heart for the people of the world. And God, we would make it our mission to take your message to them, to the uttermost parts of the earth. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Make y'all late for the lunch lines, but you'll, you'll be all right. You still be-